God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom that it gives to us. We thank you for the hope that it gives to us. That there is salvation in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to be submitted to your word in obedience. That we would be great lovers of you, lovers of your glory, lovers of your name. That we would be committed to seeking your face and following you. Father, I ask that through your word and through your Holy Spirit this morning, you would minister to us and that you would teach us and grow us. And I I just thank you so much for this family church, for your intention, for stories like Carl and Lindsay and the way that you've used our body, this community, to change their life. And Lord, we pray that you would do more of that, that, more of that than we even dare to ask or expect. And we worship you in all of these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, We have the privilege this morning of sitting under the first sermon preached through the power of the Holy Spirit in the church age. And it's not my sermon, just in case you were thinking, wow, Grady, that's very bold of you to proclaim that, right? Um, No, my sermon is not the first sermon in history preached through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So I would love for you to turn there with me. And I'm actually going to read the whole thing, even though it's a tad long, okay? So if you don't have a Bible, we have some on that back table. I'd love for you to grab one so you can read along with us. Acts chapter 2, and then after that, we're just going to go home, because what could I possibly say beyond what Peter says in Acts chapter 2? Okay, I'm kidding. I saw some of you smile. I'm kidding. I can't add anything, of course. You can't add anything to the Word of God, but maybe I can bring some, some commentary for us to be further illuminated about it. So, Acts chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also shall dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, I said that this is the first sermon preached in the church age, the new covenant era, the age of the gospel both for the Jews and the Gentiles. In the Old Covenant, it, in the Old Testament, it was the law that reigned over the people of Israel. But in this new covenant era, it is Jesus who rules and reigns over his people in resurrection power. And since that's the case, this text, I think, highlights some things that are distinctly different from the Old Testament as far as the New Testament. God's prior revelation in the Old Covenant and his new revelation in the New Covenant, okay? There are some new developments to what God has chosen to reveal to his people, and Peter, I think, speaks to those things, okay? In other words, I'm going to say that for the audience listening to Peter, this sermon is filled with radical theology. It's deeply rooted in the Old Testament as he quotes the Old Testament repeatedly, that's true, and God himself never changes so we're not getting a definition of a God who's changed his minds about things, changed his mind about things. But again, to the Jewish audience listening to Peter, this must have sounded radically strange and unfamiliar. These verses tell us so much about who God is 
and is planned for saving the human race. Far more information than we would have if we just had the Old Testament. Okay, so what I want to do is highlight three ways in which this message that Peter preaches, that sets the stage for all preaching from this point on, is very unique in its message. Three ways in which this gospel is distinct, okay? The first way is that the gospel, this message of Jesus Christ, is uniquely grace. Uniquely grace. Let's start in verse 21 where Peter quotes the Old Testament prophecy of Joel. And he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a prophecy where Joel, the prophet in the Old Testament, is looking forward to a time when salvation will be available to everyone who cries out to God for mercy. And this is profound. Because under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, in order to be saved, you had to go to the priest in the tabernacle or the temple, and he would make sacrifices on your behalf, and then you had to be faithful to obey everything that the law is commanded you to do. You had to keep all of those commandments, and every time you failed to do so, you had to go back to that priest and make new atoning sacrifices for every area in which you broke the law. You had to do the works of the law in order to be accepted by God. This is what we would call a works righteousness form of religion. Let me explain this a little bit more. Works righteousness is where your righteousness is earned by the good works that you do. Heaven is earned by the good works that you do. Your acceptance by God is utterly dependent upon your ability to keep God happy. And if you fail at that, you're in trouble. Thus, it's all about you and what you do and how you behave and how good and moral you are. It is utterly man-centered. It's essentially narcissistic. Now, I hope that for us, this way of thinking about salvation and relationship with God is archaic because we're utterly saturated in the gospel. We already understand this is not the good news of Christianity. But you need to understand how prevalent this kind of thinking is. Just two weeks ago, I was sitting with somebody and and I asked them the the kind of age-old question, how do you know you're going to heaven? And that person said to me, well, I, you know, I do good things. And I said, well, how do you know you do enough good things? And you could see their face kind of grow concerned. Not really sure. This is prevalent in human thinking. Man-centered, works-based religion, where God is happy with you based on how much good you do and displeased with you by how much bad you do. To this day, most people believe that God loves and accepts them based on what they do. And if they do enough good things, God will be happy. And if they don't do enough good things, God will be mad at them. This defines the natural human way of thinking. It's it's central to basically every other religion that's out there. It undergirds Mormonism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and every other religion that I can think of, including essentially non-religion, atheism. But Christianity, the message that Peter preaches, is uniquely grace. 
it is entirely different because it is God-centered. Because God does a good work. He saves those who call out to him, regardless of their good deeds or bad deeds. It is distinctly Christian to believe that your relationship with God is utterly dependent upon what God has done for you. Let me say that again. It is distinctly, uniquely Christian to believe that your salvation is utterly dependent upon what God has done for you. To be accepted by God literally has nothing to do with you whatsoever. Your only responsibility, according to verse 21, is to call upon the name of the Lord. And God, in his kindness and mercy, will save all who call upon him. So let me be very clear, okay? If you think that you are going to heaven because you do more good things than bad, you are not a Christian, That is not what it means to be a Christian. You may be a wonderfully good person, and I'm glad you do more good things than bad. But that does not mean that you're a Christian. A Christian is someone who believes that they're going to heaven because Christ died to save them, because God worked to save them, because they asked for mercy and God in generosity gave it to them. Look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized. This is the application of Peter's message. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. This is grace. The Christian faith is uniquely centered upon the grace of God. I want to bring in a great Christian scholar, Augustine, the early church theologian. I think he's helpful here as he describes some of this, but it's deep, so stick with me as I refer back to him. He defines grace as God's gift through Jesus Christ of the Holy Spirit, working in the inner life of the elect to restore to us the ability to love God and do good. Grace is God, the heavenly physician, curing the maladies of sin and restoring sinners to spiritual health. Grace is God's redemptive power, since enslaved sinners cannot be restored to God by their own powers, God brings them to Christ through a sovereign work of grace. Grace is God working in the hearts of men and women not only to reveal to them what is true, but also to produce within us good dispositions of the will, a desire to do what is good and right. Grace is God working in the human heart to cause our hearts to love Him and to love what He loves. And so we call upon the name of the Lord and He saves. And this is such good news. I hope that you understand this. It is the kindness of God to accept us as sinners as we are, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. And after we cry out to him and God saves us, God gives us this great gift, the Holy Spirit, to empower and enable us to love what he loves and do the same good that he does for his glory. 
Now, present in this grace is the Trinitarian work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see in Peter's sermon that Christianity is also uniquely, distinctly Trinitarian. As Christians, we believe in one God in three persons, an idea that was utterly foreign to the Jews that were listening to Peter's sermon until Jesus came on the scene and really began to explain it. And now, Peter, to explain it to his audience, talks about the Trinitarian reality of God. Look at this with me. I'm going to fly through a couple things. Verse 17, God declares that he will pour out his spirit upon mankind. Verse 23, Jesus of Nazareth is attested to by God with signs and wonders that God the Father does through Christ by the power of the Spirit. Verse 24, God the Father raises up his son Jesus from the dead. Verse 33, Jesus the Son sits at the right hand of God the Father and together they send out the Holy Spirit to minister to the people of God. Verse 36, God the Father exalts Jesus and makes him Lord. Verses 38 and 39, repent and believe in Jesus because God is calling a people to himself that he might gift to them the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's no wonder this is all over Peter's sermon because one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28 is go therefore and make disciples baptizing people in the Trinitarian reality of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, but I need to explain this because when I say that Christianity is uniquely Trinitarian, that as Christians we're living in the Trinitarian reality of God, what does that actually mean? Okay, I want to give this to you in two pieces. I'll quickly give you the theological answer to that, which I don't think most people are all that like super keen on the theological. So I'm also going to tie it to the practical, okay? Uh, Take a look at this slide and we'll see the theological meaning of this, okay? This is really important that you understand this. As Christians, we believe the Father is God. We also believe that the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. But to clarify so that we don't think that there are three gods, we make it clear the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and there is exactly one God. If you manage to really comprehend the depth of this, then you would be unique among mankind, okay? I'm not entirely sure how it works, but this is what the Scriptures teach us. There is one God, one in essence, one in nature, yet three in his beings, three in his persons. Sorry, I should say, not his beings. Three in his persons. And so you have to understand, when we see Jesus, we are not seeing God the Father like dressed up in a Jesus costume, okay? We are seeing Jesus. And yet Jesus says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. It's incredible. A wonderful mystery, an amazing but true paradox. Now, here's why this is important, because it has profound practical implications for the Christian life. Just for the record, too, a lot of Christians don't understand this. They think that Jesus was created at some point. No, 
Jesus, like the Father, has always been. He has no beginning. Okay? This is profound practical implications for the Christian life. Let me, let me state this. I think it actually shapes all that we do as Christians. Think about this. Why do we love people as Christians? Is it just because God one day was like, you know what, I think love is a good thing. Yeah, let's go with that. Love people, right? No. It's because love is built into the very essence of the being of God. God is love because in his Trinitarian nature, he loves himself. But this is a selfless, giving love. It's not selfish because it's focused on giving to the other members of the Trinity, okay? Which is why we serve. That's why we give ourselves to others in love. Is it because God one day just decided, you know what, I think serving is better than being served. Like, I think it's better to be selfless than selfish. Did God just make this stuff up one day? No. It is his very nature to serve. And we see this in Peter's sermon. Jesus serves the Father by being obedient to all that the Father commands. The Spirit serves Jesus by glorifying Jesus among men. The Father serves the Son by preserving his life and raising him from the dead. Let me try and simplify and say it another way, okay? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God And the second greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor. Do you see how with the Trinity, that is actually a statement of fact about the nature of God himself. God loves God. That's obedience to the first commandment. But in loving God, he is also loving his neighbor because he is loving the other members of the Trinity. And so when we love God and we love our neighbors, we're bringing glory to God because God for eternity past has loved his neighbor. And when we love God, we bring glory to God because we reflect the very being of God whose image we are made or who has made us in his image. This God who has been selflessly loving himself since eternity past. I realize that this is kind of deep, but I hope you get it. We are called to image the Trinitarian reality of God. There's a more practical application of this than just our behavior. It actually influences us down to the very core of who we are. As Christians, we don't just belong to some church club. We don't just attend Sunday services and picnics together. We actually share in the life of God himself. Do you understand that to be baptized into the Trinitarian reality of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to be filled with all of the fullness of God himself. Admittedly, this is is confusing. This is difficult to understand. But the life that you live, if Jesus is your Lord is actually God's life lived out by the Holy Spirit through you. Peter says in verse 32 that God raised Jesus up from the dead. Paul says in Romans 6 that if we are united with Christ in his death, then we are also united with Christ in his life. 
And Jesus says in John 10 that he came to give life abundantly. That is the life of God himself. And I can't even tell you what a life-changing, reality-altering truth this is. Like, this is so much more than just like, I wear a name tag that says I'm Christian and I live a slightly more moral life than my neighbor. It spreads out from the converted Christian heart into every dimension of this life and the life to come. Because you are united with Christ in his death and his life, you are also united with God in his love for God. Let me say that again. Because you are united with Christ in his death and his life, you are united with God in his love for God. Now let me clarify, you are not God. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting you become a God or you become part of God. You are and always will be God's creature, his creation. You will always be separate and distinct from him as his creature. You will always belong to him under his authority. But God, in fact, loves you with the very same love in which he loves himself. Because Christ lives in you. Because the Holy Spirit is the gift that God has given you. And don't let that slide by. Because you are filled with all the fullness of God himself through the saving work of Jesus and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, God the Father loves you with the very same love he has for his Son. God has come near to those who call upon his name. He shares with them an intimate, affectionate love that not even sin or evil or death can ever sever. John prayed this, and I had already written down to cover it, like Paul exclaims in Romans 8 when he ponders the love of God. If God is for us in this way, that he has gifted to us the very love that he has for his son Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit, what force or power could possibly be victorious over us? Like Paul exclaims, none, none. Nothing can separate us from the Trinitarian love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus and is guaranteed to us through the deposit of the Holy Spirit dwelling among us, dwelling in us. Uh, I have more to say, but we just need to pause and pray and give God thanks for this, don't we? It would be inappropriate to continue without that. So let me pray. God, we give you great thanks, and, and I ask that you would help us to comprehend this reality, that you would give us just a shred of understanding through the wisdom of your Holy Spirit what it means that we, your creatures, are loved with the very same love that you have for your Son. Lord, let us live in that reality and rejoice in it and let our hearts pour forth praise and exaltation to you because of this truth. Amen. So Christianity is uniquely grace-centered. It's not about you. And Christianity is quintessentially uh, Trinitarian. Those are two words that are hard to put together. We see in Peter's preaching that the Father loves us before the foundation of the world. The Son died and rose to give us life. The Spirit fills us with gladness in the presence of God. Finally, I want you to see that Christianity is distinctly heart-focused. It is a matter of your heart. 
Look at verse 37. Now when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When the people heard this message, the truth of God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father, the resurrection of the Messiah, the Son, Jesus, they were cut to the heart. This is a profoundly radical idea for a Jewish audience as well. You need to understand the Old Testament does often point out God's concern for a person's heart. But do you know what? To be a Jew, you didn't have to have your heart cut. Okay? It's a bit graphic, but to be a Jew, the male members of your family had to be circumcised. They had to have their genitals cut. This is not a coincidence that Peter uses this phrase that or I'm sorry, that the audience uses this phrase that, that Luke records it because God's intention was always for his people to be circumcised in their hearts, to have their hearts cut. What this means is that the moment when the Holy Spirit comes, there's a fundamental shift in true religion. Under the old law, the old covenant, the Old Testament, Jews thought religion was essentially a matter of external behaviors. But now we see that religion in the eyes of God is fundamentally about your heart. Of course, what you do is extremely important because Jesus teaches what you do on the outside comes ultimately from your heart. But now we also see that why you do what you do is also of critical importance. Do you do good things to manipulate God so that He will be nice to you? Do you obey God as some kind of transactional obligation like Santa, right? You do the good things, you stay on the nice list. You do the bad things, you get on the naughty list. You do good, so then you deserve good, right? That describes religion that is fundamentally concerned with your behavior, not your heart. And Christians are motivated to do good works because deep down in our hearts, we have been pierced with a love for God. God has circumcised our hearts, causing us to belong to His community and truly love Him. Um, I was thinking about this yesterday maybe just another way of, of saying this. Let me try and articulate this. I think most people think that doing good is generally the more difficult thing. We call it sort of the high road, right? Uh, if someone cuts you off in traffic, the high road is to just like let it roll off your back and let it go and not get upset or tailgate them or honk your horn, right? And we typically think that that's the more difficult path to take. And I, I want you to understand that for Christians, actually, because we've been cut to the heart, we've had a circumcision of the heart, it's actually for us sin and evil that are hard. Because our hearts are actually the shared heart of God himself within us. To do evil, to do sin, is now contrary to our very nature. It leads to an emotional and spiritual pain and suffering 
it's quite literally hard for us to do wrong because it puts a wedge between us and God, and, and that's like the last place in the world we would ever want to be. Conversely, to do what is good and right is, and true, what is commendable in the eyes of God and glorifying to Him, when we do that, that's the easy thing for us to do. Because that's the very nature of God himself who lives in us, living himself out through us. Christianity is different because it works itself from the inside out. Christianity is distinctly a matter of the heart. In fact, Christianity is so much a matter of the heart, hear this, that you could go to church your whole life and do all the right things, and say all the right stuff, and be a very good person, and in the end still hear Jesus say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, because I never knew you. Wow. And the reason he would say that is because even though you went to church and did all the right stuff and said all the right things, you never shared his heart. And here we've come full circle, okay? Because if you're pierced to the heart this morning, what should you do? If you hear this reality of the Trinitarian nature of God and you long for that and you hate your sin and you recognize your brokenness and your need, guess what? Peter tells you through the prophet Joel what you need to do. You only have to call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved because God loves to give His grace in liberal portions. So let me close with this, okay? Uh, I hope that in some small way, leaping off the pages of Peter's sermon, I've allowed you to see that Christianity is distinct. I think that's one of the things that he wanted his audience to come and understand. I think this was the purpose or one of the purposes of Peter's sermon. To show those who are far from God that God has come near in the manifestation of his Holy Spirit. These people are behaving erratically not because they're drunk, but because God himself has fallen upon them, living proof that his reality has come in the person of Christ. Something new has begun in the events surrounding Passover and Pentecost. Now listen, we've been in 40 days of prayer for our church and our community, and at the heart of our prayers through this time has been a desire to see our church achieve or realize what it means for us to be the bride of Christ, to carry the mission of Christ, into the community of Maricopa and ultimately the world. And this is what I want people to know, that this is, this is not complicated. This is not burdensome. This is joyful good news. There is a God who is kind, who is compassionate, who is slow to anger, a God who accepts you not because you deserve acceptance, but because He's gracious. There's a God who sees your life in all of your brokenness, in all of your sin, in all of your woundedness and your hurting, and He loves you. His heart goes out to you. 
And he's calling you to come to his open arms, to be embraced by him. He made a priceless sacrifice so that you could know his love, his tenderness. He wants to fill you with his own divine presence and power, his own life. He wants to change your heart, to give you a new heart, his own heart, so that you might have intimacy with God. The intimacy that every human heart longs for and searches for. And friends, don't you see that's our message? Like, we are praying for 40 days that God would do a mighty work so that people would hear that message. Many will say, I don't care. But some, like the hearers of Peter's message, will say, brothers, sisters, this is This is good news, and I'm pierced to the heart, and what must I do? And that's our message, repent of sin. Leave its burden behind. Let God break those shackles, and instead come and be baptized into the Trinitarian reality of God. Drink from the water of life and be satisfied by the God who loves you. And this is what motivates us to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Like, do your neighbors know this good news? Do your friends know this good news? Do your coworkers know this good news? You, do you know this good news? You certainly can't give it until you understand it yourself. So may we continue to pray and continue to expect that God will use us to bring his sheep home. May we continue to pray and believe that people will respond to this message if we are faithful to proclaim it. Let me pray. God, make us faithful to proclaim it. Help us believe it and understand it and know it. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might experience this reality. And Lord, as we are bold to preach it and proclaim it and live it out, I pray. I pray that you would do a work to bring many souls to repentance for the glory of Jesus, that these people too might share in our joy in knowing the Son of God. Amen.